0: Welcome to another C3 Church Rockingham podcast. For more information about C3 Rockingham, please visit www.c3r.org.au. How many got their Bibles? Bible, iPhone, iPad, smartphone, whatever you got. Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. Wave it around. Make the devil mad. I want you to find 2 Kings with me. I'm I'm gonna read out if you wanna put, if if we got uh, time, you can put it up to 2 Kings. Chapter 13: New King James. room here. Second Kings, Chapter 13. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Now right before I read it, let me just preface my remarks, because what we're about to read happened historically. Everything in the Bible happened. Everything in the Bible is an historical account of something that actually took place. However, everything in the Bible not only happened, everything in the Bible is happening. And if I just see it historically as something that happened, it will never release its power and its wisdom into my life. But when I make that bridge, that connection, and recognize this actually happened, it's an historical account, but it's happening, then all of a sudden what happened can happen again it personalizes, I see myself in the story. And it's when I see myself in the story that the story then comes alive in me. It's when it's breathed into me, it's when faith arises. That's when people do things that they've never done. That's when people make changes and decisions they've never made. That's what releases miracles and changes in lives when I can make that mental transition that I am now in that story. Until then, it's delegated or relegated to the past and it becomes historical and it won't change me. But it's only when that story is seen in the light of this is happening to me, I am in this story. Then the story then releases something at that moment into my life and becomes alive because God's word is breathing with power. It's God breathed. So look at the story. The story's interesting. It contains two individuals and a nation. And it starts out in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14, It said, Elijah had become sick with the illness, which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him, wept over his face, and said, O oh my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. Elijah said to him, Take the bow and some arrows he took to himself the bow and some arrows he said to the king of israel put your hands on the bow so he put his hands on it elijah put his hands on the king's hands and he said open up the window eastward or the east window and he opened it then elijah said shoot and he shot and he said the arrow of the lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from syria for you must strike the syrians of aphek until you destroy them and he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike them on the ground. So he struck them three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck them five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will only strike Syria three times. Interesting, interesting. Because in that story, there is Elijah, who's a prophet. There was Joash, who's a king. And there's an enemy nation called Syria. Now, when you see that, you begin to then put yourself in it because they were surrounded by an enemy force. And Joash, the king, didn't know what to do, so he went to Elijah to get instructions. And Elijah, I'm trying to think of this word. For lack of a better word, I'll just explain it with more more than one word. But What you see here is is symbolic. So he's using symbolism to destroy something. A lot of things in the Bible are symbolic. God will ask you to do something that looks symbolic because he wants to see what's in you. And before he can do something, he has to create something. So this is very symbolic in its nature. There's an enemy force Every human being will face difficulties in life. You're never going to go unscathed in this world. You and I are going to face disappointments. We're going to face obstacles. We're going to face situations. They asked the famous boxer, Jim Corbett, from the 1910s or 1920s. I forget when he fought. I went around anyhow. And they asked him, they said, which punch knocked you out? He said, well, that's simple. It's the one I didn't see. The punch you don't see is the one that always knocks you out because you never saw it coming. And so we always face situations in life, all of us. You might be in a great place right now, but that place might change, and so this is, becomes very important. You might be facing a situation now that seemingly is very difficult. It might be in the family. It might be in your marriage. It might be in your health. It might be emotional. Whatever the case might be, financial. And you see that that everyone's gonna face something. The first, there's two big thoughts right here. The first thought is every problem is a place, is every no problem is a place of permanence. Problems are a place of passage. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah when you go through the fire, when you go through the flood. Problems are never a place of permanence. So never think this is going to be with me forever. You will go through it. The Bible said when in Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fail. When I walk through, now here's a, 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 a powerful thought. You ought to tweet this one. If you know you can get through it, you can get through it. I'm going to say that again. That, that, That required a lot more audience response than what I just got. If you know, it's a powerful thought. If I know I can get through it, I can get through it. It's never a place of permanence. It's a place of passage you will get, are you with me? I don't care what you're you're gonna get through it. It came, the old adage is it came to pass. It didn't come to stay. It came to pass. You're gonna get through it. No matter what it is, you're gonna get through it. It's not a place where you're gonna, you don't camp in a fire. You don't build a house in a fire. You don't build a house in the flood. You're gonna go through the flood. You're gonna go through the fire. The other thought right here, which is, which is powerful, and from an age up, I'm going to make you real happy. From an age down, you're going to get aggravated with me in just a moment, but that's all right. I love a little combativeness once in a while. The king, Joash, went to a guy by the name of Elijah, Elijah's prophet. An Old Testament prophet is also called a seer. One that can see. Now, we don't have Old Testament prophets like that today. These guys held amazing authority. I mean, amazing. And they told you something. Oh, my God. It's going to happen. But we do have people all around us that can see. And they're usually older because they've been through what you might be going through. And so many times we got a generation from an age down that assume they know more than a generation from an age up. So they repeat the problem over and over again because they don't realize God just puts somebody in their life that has more sense than you do. Because they've been there and they can see things. And the only reason why they can see it is because they lived it. They got scars to prove it. Several years ago, back in the nineteen 60s no 70s in the nation of Papua New Guinea we've we've done a lot of work there through the years and so I got friends that were missionaries that went there in 1964 cannibalism was outlawed as the last nation on earth to practice tribal cannibalism was outlawed by the government in 1965 that doesn't mean it stopped it just became illegal to eat people And in the 1970s, a disease broke out in the nation of Papua New Guinea. And all these young men in their 20s were dying, just dying, just dying. They couldn't figure out what it was. Now, if you know a little bit about your Australian history, you'll also know that Papua New Guinea in the early 70s was still under the domain of Australia. So your nation sent up their health department and they're trying to figure out why, why these guys were dying, what, what, what they were dying of. Because it wasn't a few, it was a lot of young men, not women, young men were dying in their 20s. They found out it was, a, it was mad cow disease. But they couldn't find its origin. Same thing as mad cow. They call it in their language. You can look it up later, don't do it now. It's called Kuru, K-U-R-U, Kuru disease. And they were dying from it, but they couldn't figure out how they got it. Well, Papua New Guinea culture, like all tribal cultures and ancient cultures, pass wisdom on the same way. And the way wisdom is passed generationally in ancient cultures is from the fathers to the sons around campfires. So they build the fire at night, they sit down, it's a very long process, and the Papas begin to talk They talk history, they talk life, they talk events, they talk, you look at the Old Testament, it was all over. Every time a battle would happen, pile rocks, plant trees, pile rocks, plant trees, pile rocks, plant trees. Young boy grows up, he's with his father. Well, how come those rocks are there? Let me tell you about the battle. Let me tell you what happened. And history was passed and then the lessons or the wisdom of history was passed through the story. That's all ancient cultures still do that. And so in that nation, that what was happening until these young guys begin to think there's gotta be a faster way. I mean, it's taken a long time. We gotta wait for the next campfire. Now remember that Joash was the king, but even as a king, he had the need to go to the prophet to find out what to do to get out of this dilemma. He didn't try to do it himself. He had to go to somebody that had eyes to see. So this young generation in Papua New Guinea, they began to think, we, we, I mean, this is, a, this is a long process. There's got to be a faster way. So when a papa would die, they opened up their heads and they ate their brains. Because in the simplicity of their culture, they assumed that if we just eat the brain, we get the wisdom. And it created a disease called kuru, and they started dying. Today, we don't do that. Today, we have Google. So today, the under 35-year-olds, I might be exaggerating on that, maybe it's under 30-year-olds, assume that what you read is as valid as what I lived. And don't ever assume that what you read which is a trademark of the next generation. What do they call that next generation now? Millennials. I run into this. What you read, I could give a flip what you read. And don't ever think that what you read is as valid as what somebody had to live and somebody had to go through. Just because you read about having a baby don't mean you know anything about it. Just because you read about marriage doesn't mean you know anything about it. Just because you read about starting a business doesn't mean you know anything about it. Just because you read about life doesn't mean you know anything about it. And so never think you can take a shortcut where wisdom is concerned because you and I in a time of difficulty need somebody that had the ability to see where we are and take their counsel because they'll get you out of that situation. I told you I'd make some of you happy. I know who's clapping. I know what age group just clapped them. <laughs> but it's true. All Google is is a bunch of information. But a parent, somebody older, it's not information. When I call up Wayne Myers, who's 90, I told you about him this morning. If you were here, if you weren't here, get the message. Who turns 98 this year. I don't talk when I call him up. I don't talk. What do I have to say to him? What wisdom do I have to impart to a man that raised the money to build 6,000 churches in Mexico? What can I tell him who's been married to the same woman for 75 years? What can I tell the man that rode mules? through the highlands, through the mountains of Mexico, to the Indians and suffered and went through all the things. What can I tell a man that gave away 125 cars to Mexican pastors and gave the refrigerator out of his own home when Martha, his wife came home, there was nothing there, that has spent his entire life giving hundreds and probably tens of millions of dollars away. What can I tell him? Can I tell him how to have a good marriage? No. Can I tell him how to have faith? No. Can I give him any any amount of wisdom? Absolutely not. So I shut up. And he can say whatever he wants, as long as he wants. And he can run the table because that man has wisdom. Are you with me? So don't ever assume that you know something when you don't know it. But go to somebody that does. That's what this story initiates within us. The second Big thought in this story that I love. I got you happy on that one. Remember Kuru, K U R U. The second one is in verse 15, and the first thing Elijah, Elijah tells the king, he said, "Take the bow." Now, what good's a bow and some arrows against a, a, a military force? It's symbolic. Take the bow. I'm going to say it several. I'm going to say, it several, more time, gonna say it several more times. I'm going to say several more times. I like hearing myself say it Anyways, as I'm gonna keep on saying it. Take the bow. Take the bow. What good is a bow and some arrows? There's an enemy out there. You want me to take a bow? What, am I gonna shoot some of them? Take the bow. Why? Because in life, it's not what you have, it's what you take. I don't care what you have. A lot of people have things. They have degrees, they have money, they have ideas, they have, I've run into more, listen, a, a man, I've run into more men in my life that tell me, and it's not a dream, it's an illusion. And they're happy to live behind an illusion because they don't take anything. They tell me what they're gonna do. I remember one guy that comes to my mind, and, and he's, always, he's, always gonna, he's always gonna move to Germany. I said, then just Go. I'm tired of hearing this thing. You've been telling everybody for 10 years that God's called you to Germany. When are you gonna go? I'm just waiting for him to give me. I said, man, you've been waiting. He's told you 10 years ago, go. I'd rather go and fail than stay and just talk about it all my life. It's an illusion. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. It's an illusion. He said, take it. It's not what you have that's gonna change anything in life. It's what you take. When Pastor Claude gets up here and he talks about that first fruits offering, it's what you take. How does a 10% of what I give to God change everything? Because it's not what I have, it's what I take. It's what creates something in life. When Jesus fed the five, the feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle that's in all four gospels, the only one. So it's repeated four separate times in each of the Gospels. But when he asked the disciples, what do you have? They said, well, the only thing we have is what? Five fish and, and, uh, no, I mean, five loaves and two fish. In other words, take what you have. Is five loaves and two fish enough? No, but you gotta take what you got. Take the boat, take what you have. Mother Teresa, when she went to India, um, and walked the streets of Calcutta and she was questioned on what can you do? She was, this is was years ago. What can you do? How can you, I mean, this is, a, 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 this is not a matriarchal, it's a patriarchal culture. What can you do? The people are dying on the streets every day. She reached into her pocket, the stories I read it in Reader Digest years ago. She reached into her pocket, she pulled out three coins and she said, I got three coins, I've got God, I can do anything. She took what she had, take the bow. She had three coins, take what you have. Don't wait and you no miracle happens because you wait until you have it all. You take the little bit. This church did not get built because this couple waited until they had everything. They took what they had and that triggers something else and triggers something else and triggers. What do you have? I don't care what it is. What do you have? What education do you have now? What time do you have now? Don't wait. Well, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting until I have more. Why? Take what you have the um, first church building we built we had built this church building and then we it, we outgrew it we added on to it the property was 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 completely too small and you know you don't you make tons of mistakes i mean we made tons we made architectural mistakes we made all kinds of mistakes cuz we're doing everything ourselves and so we finally came to the conclusion there's not enough land the building's too small but i don't have any money So what am I going to do? So I called 12 realtors. I don't encourage anybody to do this. In fact, I said this one time, I made realtor, uh, they made a mad at me. Oh, you shouldn't do this, unethical. I don't care, I called 12 of them because nobody bit. I told them all the same thing. I'm a pastor, I got 200,000 bucks in the bank and I need land. Only one of them even took me up on the offer. They don't like to deal with churches and his name was R.J. Schaefer, he was Jewish. Drove down to the church in a big Mercedes. I never forgot it. He said, get in. Jewish guy. They called him Mr. Westside. He owned land everywhere. He's driving me in this Mercedes. I'm in my, I forget, I'm trying to think how old I was. Probably latter twenties, maybe 30. He's driving me all around and he's he's pointing all this land. He's like, I own that. Buy that one from me. I said, no, I don't want that one. Took me up on a hill that overlooked the city. And he said, this would be a, I I I think you need to buy this. I said, I don't want it. Drove me down. This is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on old U.S. 66, the most iconic highway in America. They call it Central Avenue. It goes right through the gut of the city. And I look out the window. He said, "Well, I got some land there." And and something jumped. And I said, "I want that land. I want that land." He says, "Not enough." I said, "Well, who owns the land next to it?" He said, "A Cuban." And I said, "Well, I want your land and the Cuban's land." He said, you're not going to get his land. I said, why not? He said, he's a Cuban. He said, you know anything about Cubans? I said, no. He said, their land's worth more to them than their wife. And he said, besides that, I'm a Jew. And I've been trying for two years to get that Cuban's land. And if a Jew can't get it, then no way a Christian can. And I told him, I said, we're going to pray. I'm going to go back. We're going to pray. He called me up, Honest Truth, two weeks later. He said, oh, I "I can't believe it. He said, he's gonna sell you that land. He said, you "You did in two weeks what I haven't done in two years. And he said, and besides that, he's gonna sell it to you half price. I said, why? Oh, his wife divorced him. He needs money. I said, praise God. So now you gotta understand the dilemma. The land's worth more than 200,000, that becomes a down payment. But now I've got, I tied up this land. We are 10 kilometers, our building, our church is 10 kilometers away, I'm all excited. But what, you see, if you just take what you've got, you gotta take what you've got, you take what you've got. Go as far as you can with what you have. Take the bow, take the bow. You take some, I took some, I went as far as I could. And then you run into another problem. There's always obstacles or miracles waiting to happen. And so I come back, I tell Ginger, I said, I said, well, we got this land. Well, she already knew that. So we tied the thing up. I put a big sign on it, future home, all this stuff. And then I'm thinking, well, the building we've got and the land we've got, I don't think I can sell it because I don't think any church wants to buy it. And so, so, so then I'm trying to figure out, how, we don't have any more money. So what am I going to do? And somebody, I don't know who it was at this stage Somebody said, why don't you move the building? I said, what? Yeah, take your existing building, pick it up. And move it. I said, you can't do that. Yeah, call this guy. So he gave me a business card. The guy's name was Ted Waterman. He's a short, muscular guy. He came serious. He comes down as a calculator, comes into the existing church, and he starts walking around, and he was serious. And I was joking with him. I thought it was a joke. I said, you think you can move this? And, he, and he's going, and he's punching the calculator, looking at the thing. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, you really think you can actually like, pick the building up? Yeah. <laughs> like at one time? Uh-huh. How much? So I won't get into the details, but it was a lot cheaper than trying to build. So I tell Ginger, I said, we're going to pick the whole building up. going to move this thing. She said, how long is that going to take? I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, eight, nine months. Where are we going to meet? So I haven't thought of that. I said, well, I'll get a tent, a big tent stick it on the property. She said, it's, it's, we're going into winter. It snows. I said, we'll just get big blowers. She said, how about toilets? I'll put chemical toilets. I don't know. She said, we can't do We'll lose everybody. So then I thought, well, I didn't know what to do. What I didn't realize in back of the land that we had just bought was a big warehouse. I didn't even look. So I saw the thing. I went and I talked to the guy that owned it and I said, can I rent this thing? He said, yeah. I said, is it empty? He said, the whole thing's empty. How much you want? And I wanted a lot. So I took the whole thing and a cheap. and it had a giant parking lot held about 500 cars. So we, and it was right behind the building. Then I created another problem because I can get that and we can move in there, but it takes nine months to prep this building. So they prepped the thing. Now this is an honest truth. I got pictures to prove this. Took nine months, they picked the entire church up. One piece. It took a day and three quarters to go 10 kilometers. The state had to sign off on it, and they never read how big the building was, and they signed it, which meant they were completely financial responsible to change, to move all the telephone lines, take out all the stoplights, shut down the right. We had a 100 foot, a 33 meter right away. They had to shut the whole thing down for a day and three quarters. The media came out. They filmed it. People set up their little chairs, their lawn chairs, watching the thing go by. And I said, and and we were on the news, we were on the five o'clock news, six o'clock news, 10 o'clock news. The church that loved their building so much, they took it with them. (laughs) All of that happened because we took something. What do you have? Take it. No matter what it looks like, no matter how insignificant it might do in your mind, God wants, He said, take the bow. The the third, after that, after that, He comes down to verse 17. And it's interesting, it's interesting because as soon as Elijah or Joash took the bow, Elijah put his hands on his hands because what you take, God takes. As Soon as he put his hands on it, the prophet's hands went over him. As Soon as he grabbed the arrow, the prophet came around and put his hands on his hands. When you take something, God puts his hands on your hands. He's waiting for you to take it. It's very symbolic. He's waiting for you to take it. He wants to see what's in you. And then he said, open up the window and shoot the arrow. There's always, in any situation of life, an open window. Never look down. Always look up. There's always an open window. There'll be voices that'll scream at you in times of your life that'll tell you it's over with. It'll tell you it's not going to work. The devil is the master of the elimination of hope for your future. But I'm here to tell you there's oh, always, the Bible said in Song of Solomon, one of the most powerful scriptures I've ever read. It says the time of the singing of the birds will return. It says the storm, birds sing when the storm passes. The time of the singing of the birds will return I've told this story numerous times I'm sure if I've ever told it here took me a long time to ever tell it because I was embarrassed to tell it and I finally got over that because there's a stigma in Christianity in ministry when you get honest in 1996 I went through probably the worst state of clinical depression of my life I never had had it before. It hit me! But I would lie. If you talk about being blindsided, I was totally blindsided. You can look back at 2020 vision. You know, you can look back and you can see how it happened. But when you're in the midst of it, you can't even see that. You see it later, which won't do you any good because it's over with. But when you're in the midst of it, it's just it's just it's not a bad day. It's not the blues. It's when the soul of a human being caves. And all of the toxicity that has been stored up floods your emotional center to the degree that you can't snap out of it. You can't pull yourself up with your bootstraps. You do everything you can to prop yourself up and just to get through the day only to wake up the next day with the clouds still there. It doesn't go away in a day, a week, a month. Taste a change of lifestyle. I end up in the hospital. I won't go through the whole story, but I can remember every voice in me was screaming, it's over, it's over, it's over, it's over. And then towards the end of that year or the middle of the year, I got a phone call. Hope is one of the most powerful things God's ever given a human being. Open up the window, that's hope. Hope is a window that opens up in your future. It can be small, it doesn't have to be big. But the Bible calls it the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It says, put on the helmet of hope. Hope changes everything. It's one of those powerful forces that God gave a human being. And God is the author of hope. He never leaves. To say that something is hopeless is to say that God's helpless. And God's never helpless. So nothing is hopeless in life. He will always breathe hope. He will always open up. I don't care if it's this big. There's a window of hope, a window of hope. And I remember getting a phone call and you're, just, you're, you're almost aching. You're, you're wanting to find that hope. You're, it's like you're in a dark cloud and you're trying to find something to grab, something to latch onto. I mention this because Australia is listed as one of the highest nations on earth of clinical depression. It's the only nation that I know that years ago, you ran a full thing in your Qantas airline magazine. I forget, it was a whole campaign that you're supposed to walk up to people and ask them how they're doing. I forget the whole, are you okay, are you okay? In, your, in the airports, I still see it, right fixed to the wall of the airports that have information on clinical depression. It's very high in this nation, very high in America. In fact, I call it the disease of the affluent. Because the more affluent people come, the higher it grows within a culture. And it's nothing, and I've seen over, for, the, for years when I mention it, it's amazing how many people have faced it or are in it right now. But God always has hope. There's always a window. And I got a phone call. It was probably maybe the middle of summer or our summer, June or July, something like that, and a guy called me up and he said, I want you to come with me to the nation of Madagascar. We're going to do this big crusade. We're going to do a pastor's conference. I want you to do the pastor's conference. Help me out in this crusade. And everything in me, I was struggling to say yes. I wanted to say yes, but in me, because I couldn't see myself in that position again. But I just said, I'll do it. Take the arrow. Open up the window. But when that window opened, he said, shoot the arrow. You got to go through it. You got to latch onto it. No matter what it is, go through it. Hang on to it. And I remember going. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever been involved in. It was on a Sunday, and he asked me to give the response, the altar call. We had 190,000 people, approximate in this giant arena, outside arena, concrete bleachers in a circular form. I got photos of this thing. We had 100,000 people that gave their life to Christ. I was crying. And I looked, I said, devil, look at it. You said it'd never happen again. There's always an open window. And then he ends, and I love the way he ends. He said, take the arrows, strike them on the ground. It's an odd ending because Joash hit the arrow. He never told him how many times they hit him. He hit him three times and stopped. And Elijah said, why, how come you stopped? How come you stopped? Why didn't you keep hitting him? And I'm here to tell you tonight, God's given you arrows. Those arrows are prayer. Those arrows are a dream. See, a lot of times we start out the year and we strike our arrows. We're all gung-ho. i got a dream. I'm gonna do this for God. I'm gonna do that. We're hitting the arrow, and then February, March come, and we've already given up on our arrows. Time to strike them again. Strike the arrow of prayer. Strike the arrow of vision. Strike the arrow for your family. Strike the Demand things the reason why there's so little life that flows in most Christians, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Life is energy, life is vitality, life is authority, life is power, life, has, it contains it, it, all those things and the average believer today has almost no life flowing through them because there's no demand on the life of God inside of them. A car in the garage needs no petrol because it's not going anywhere. There's no demand on that thing. But when there's a demand on it, then it requires something. And when I make a demand on my life, you I mark it down. Life will start to come up. Life will start to spring up. Make a demand. It's like the physical body. If I don't make a demand on my body, no life No strength comes into it. I got to take those arrows and I got to say, God, I'm going to do it again. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to give up. I don't care what it looks like. We're going to strike the arrows of prayer. We're going to strike the arrows of faith. We're going to strike it for our family, our life, our future. Don't let up on your faith in God. Don't let up on a dream. Don't let up on a vision. Don't think. We pray these simplistic, stupid Prayers, thinking if we dumb things down, God gets excited. Jesus never got excited when faith was dumbed down. What got him excited is when he saw big faith believing when he saw something he said I have not found so great a faith. Note on it, Israel he never complimented little faith he never complimented little prayers. He always was drawn to people that asked him big things. I'm going to end on this listen to me, listen to me. There's 307 questions that Jesus asked in the four gospels. Three hundred and seven. He loves questions. Three hundred and seven questions that he asked in the four gospels. Now listen to me. And the one question that he asked more than any other question. You want to know what it is? Do you want to know, Pastor? Close the only one. Do you want to know what it is? Three hundred and seven questions Jesus asked. Three hundred and seven questions. That's a lot of questions. And you know what he asked? You know what the framework is? You know what the framework of the four Gospels is? It's not three and there's three and a half years framework, but the framework of the four Gospels is comprised in a few months. If you compress what's happening in the four Gospels, it's only a few months. It's over a span of three and a half years, but it's only a few months. It's amazing. Three hundred and seven questions. And there's one question that Jesus asked more than any other question. If I can discover the one question, sorry, that Jesus asked more than any other question, the one question that he asked more than any other question, that would give me an insight into who he is. And the one question that Jesus asked more than any other question is what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me? What a question! That thing ought to explode. What do you want me to do? do for you. The son of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, all things were made for him, by him, through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Says, what do you want me to do for you? My God. And we say, well, God, if I can just get by now. Ask something big. Stand up with me. Ask something big. Believe something big. Require something big. And the God that is big will get excited over your life and it'll open up a door, a window, and something will happen. Make a demand. Hit the arrows again. This is the end of the podcast. For more information about C3 Rockingham, please visit www.c3r.org.au or call us on 95245055. 5055.